Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at all forms of transport from the humble bike through, perhaps, to a rocket-powered spaceship. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including the federal budget. And with car sales rebounding, particularly at the two ends of the market, smaller, lower-priced vehicles and more expensive larger cars, we again talk to Kate Gillis, the Managing Director of Peugeot Australia, and ask, are they riding that wave? And we catch up with two of our favourite guests, motoring journalist Paul Morell and transport expert with a sense of humour, Brian Smith. You can find our programs and more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are podcast on Spotify or iTunes. And of course, there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start this program. Let's begin with the news. The federal budget has seen increased spending in most transport areas, including construction and road safety. But one of the problems with this and most other budgets is an emphasis on the size of the spending rather than the quality of the outcomes. Are we maximising benefits? A relatively modest increase in funds is needed to ensure we are building the right things. But to do this, we need to address some systemic problems that diminish our capacity to make good decisions, such as the reduction of skills in government departments, the politicisation of government departments, community consultation, which is too often show and tell rather than interactive engagement. Discussions are based on gross generalisations like like the pub test and jingoistic slogans, poor data science, the collection, management and use of data, failure to fully evaluate results and outsourcing of analysis, which then focuses on profit not broader community benefit. The Volkswagen Multivan is the successor to the Combi. They are now classed as people movers. It is part of the VW Transporter range and the latest model is the T6.1. Its overall shape is tall and squarish, somewhat van-like, especially when compared to the Kia Carnival. But we had the two-tone paint job that looked pretty good certainly better than the Toyota Granvia or the current Hyundai IMAX. The multivan comes in a short wheelbase or an extra 400mm long wheelbase version. They have a 2-litre diesel engine. For the entry-level model, there's a single turbocharger and a modest 110 kilowatts. The other is a twin turbo with a great throttle response from 147 kilowatts. The class-leading feature is that some variants have all-wheel drive. Prices range from nearly $62,000 to $88,000 plus on-road costs. Volkswagen's transporter ute, single or dual cab, is not for the active young family. It's a workhorse. It's for taking people and materials to and from a worksite, not for long holiday trips with the kids in their seats and the surfboards in the rear tray. It has good visibility, all-wheel drive option, room for three people in the front seats, if at least one, is very thin. A very good twin-turbo diesel engine with great throttle response, a big aluminium tray with the right cargo anchor points and easy-to-use side panels. But the dual cab only has a bench seat in the back with no child anchor points. The rear door windows don't open and there's no rear-view camera nor parking warning devices. 
The VW is priced from 57500 for the two-wheel drive and 60500 for the all-wheel drive, plus on-road costs. Kia and several other brands have outperformed Tesla in the functionality of their mobile phone apps that provide owners with information and management of their electric vehicles. J.D. Power has just completed a benchmark study, including customer feedback, on how well various mobile apps help owners. 41% of EV owners claim that they use their smartphone app at least every other trip. Tesla's smartphone app ranked 6th out of 14 manufacturers behind Kia, Ford, Porsche, Chevrolet and Hyundai, which are said to be not only better but significantly better. While Tesla was initially progressive with features such as charging and range status and remote management of the interior temperature before you get into the vehicle, it has been slow to upgrade their capabilities. Missing applications include route planning to ensure that you know where and when to charge your batteries when needed. The Queensland Government has imposed curfew restrictions on truck deliveries. Freight vehicles have had curfews because they make a noise and disturb communities, but they were relaxed in states across Australia when COVID created more home deliveries and a need to stock up when there was panic buying. Queensland reinstated the curfews on the 1st of May, but New South Wales will not do so until March next year. There are benefits in increasing delivery hours, including reducing truck volumes in peak times. But to facilitate this happening requires a concerted push to introduce new technologies, such as battery or hydrogen-powered electric trucks, or at least major hybrid technologies. This could also address Australia's very old average age of fleet vehicles. It is often the older, less efficient vehicles that are used in urban areas. Electric bicycles adapted for delivery could also be part of the equation. And that has been the news. With the changing landscape in car sales as we progress beyond the initial phase of COVID, but also in other long-term issues. With the changing landscape in car sales as we progress beyond the initial phase of COVID, but also in other long-term issues such as pollution, e-commerce and changing modes of transport, how does a significant international car manufacturer, Peugeot, overcome a very small presence in Australia? Kate Gillis is the Managing Director of Peugeot Australia. G'day, Kate. Thanks for your time again. Good morning, David. Very nice to be with you. There is some recovery in car sales. Are you riding that wave? Yeah, look, definitely some some good recovery in car sales. We've seen that over the last number of months. Um, and I think I think most of the car brands are seeing or taking advantage of that, albeit you know with some supply difficulty. But uh, like like most other brands, Peugeot is is taking advantage of that. It, it certainly does help with some beautiful new products that we've got uh, launched for this year. I'll take up the word beautiful too because I think that's important. Have you got supply problems? We don't have supply problem supply problems. However, you know that's that is a, as of today, um, and you know it's an ever changing environment that we're working with at the minute, mm. and we're you know keeping a weekly conversation with with our factories to ensure that we've got a continuation of supply. So at this point in time, we have got no 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 issues whatsoever. You have to focus, really, don't you? You can't be all things to all people. You have, and are you maintaining a small range of vehicles? 
It is focused on SUVs, isn't it? I think you'd now really only have one sedan, the 508, which is a very elegant-looking car, I must admit. Does that move you away a little bit from your your history and tradition, which was practical small sedans, including hot hatches? Is that uh, a, a, a different approach? Um, I wouldn't say it's a different approach at all. We're reading the market, obviously, with you know where SUVs are going, and that is that's on a on a global trend. But on our passenger cars, we do currently have our 508 Fastback and 508 Touring Wagon, and it's just in in the process of moving out all of the the last stocks of the 308, so the small hatch that you're that you're talking about. We will be looking at the new 308. Um, you would have probably seen that that has been launched globally. A magnificent looking small car, and we will be getting that uh, in the near future. So it's it's definitely one for our range. We talked a lot about SUVs, but of course, none of yours at the moment are four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive, and you're talking elegance in many ways. Again, your tradition was a lot of very successful in the country. How do you pitch your cars in that non-urban or that more regional environment? I think uh, with with all, with our cars being being front wheel drive, um, there is the benefit of comfort, and there is the benefit of technology and the right spec for this market, and that comes down to some of our safety features that we have. No, we don't have all wheel drive, but that's not necessarily the uh, prerequisite for regional or rural driving. A comfortable ride uh, with great specs um, and technology within the cabin, and as well with fantastic suspension from the vehicle. I think all of those lead to no reason why you can't take a front wheel drive into rural areas over an all wheel drive. You need comfortable touring as much as anything. Yes, correct, correct you are going to get in then the 308 is that an important point that people could then progress through the Peugeot brand in Australia if you have a very limited range then you are targeting in this case I think uh, the more mature people is it is it going to be important for you to bring in cars like the 308 in order that people might start out small and move move through Absolutely. You know, the we, we talked about the SUV market and it is the, one of the largest, if we look at it combined from a small, medium and large, it is the, the largest part of our market. But there's still a very healthy market for, uh, for small hatches um, or, or small passenger vehicles. The 308 is a heritage model for us. We've had enormous success in the past with that model, um, and it's certainly got a very firm place uh, in in our future as well. Would you like to see a few others as well, uh, down into the 208s and things? Oh, absolutely, uh, 100%. And, uh, you know, we, we haven't got any any detail around that as yet, but we're certainly still evaluating the 208 for this market. Um, it's it's looking very positive, although we've got nothing to share at this stage. But that's something that uh, that we will have more information on probably towards the end of the year. I think that will lower the average age of a Peugeot buyer. I think it will broaden the market of the Peugeot buyer. It's a that's a beautiful vehicle, you know, it, it really is. So uh, we're working hard at the minute to ensure that it's got a, a very firm place in this market. So vans, actually, you've done remarkably well in vans. Is that almost uh, 
different market altogether? Does the brand name mean as much? How do you fit in a, a luxury cars and vans into in under the one brand heading? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because I don't think that there is a natural relationship currently or well, certainly, say, 12 months ago of the brand of Peugeot having a light commercial vehicle range as well. However, we have worked hard um, in the last 12, 18 months to get in front of the right people. Um, we're starting ground up in terms of recommendation and in terms of um, referral and reputation. So Peugeot has got a very um, has got a very very good product from a light commercial perspective, and when you line it up against the competitive set, we do stand out. We punch above our weight, and from our our team's perspective and our dealers' perspective, you know we're having to I guess not push into conversations, but bring ourselves into conversations where Peugeot and a light commercial vehicle have never have never had a uh, have never had a place. But once we've been able to turn heads of customers, we're finding that we're landing the product really, really well. So we talk about conversion. Uh, We talk about um, when we get an inquiry, how many of those inquiries turn into sales. And we're finding that from a light commercial perspective, we punch very much above our weight in terms of the level of conversion that we're getting on our light commercial vehicles better than, than we had expected. And the reason being is that it's a it's a high quality product compared to our compared to our competitors. In a van sense, what do you call quality? Well it's a the quality is in is in terms of practicality um, of the van as well as um, as well as comfort. So you've got everything that you need from a comfort perspective, but you've also taken into account the practicality of of its payload, of its accessibility of the ability to um, to store uh, to to store your goods and services in the van that allows you then um, the ability to you know, fold the front seats down for for longer pieces of um, longer pieces of material. Um, so it, it it really does combine a a good drive, um, a very practical drive, as well as the accessibility of of a great payload. Kate, I've taken a lot of your time, but I do appreciate. It. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you, David. And that's Kate Dillis from the Managing Director of Peugeot Australia chatting about moving in a changing market. You're listening to Overdrive. I was looking at a number of cars in an average street where it was obvious that many of the mag wheels had been scraped on the curb while parking. Then later, a friend dropped by and I noticed that his rims had a thin strip of colourful plastic which added some rim protection, while looking like an enhancement feature. Apparently, they cost him $50 each, and one brand is called Alloy Gators. Seems a small price to pay, particularly as his car was a Ferrari. This is Overdrive across Australia. Mazda CX-9 has always been something just a little special in the upper-end SUV range. The latest Azami LE takes the quality to a new level. The stylish update LE features a new 20-inch alloy wheel design, titanium grey metallic front grille finish and larger rear tailpipes. Inside it's pure quality with quilted Nappa leather, aluminium trim highlights and a special feature that the mid-row has captain seats. The two second row seats are separated by an impressively appointed centre console and offer an individual electronic adjustment as well as heating and ventilation functions. Walk-in access to the third seat row is achieved via a simple one-touch system. 
CX-9 is powered by a 2.5 litre Skyactiv turbo four-cylinder petrol engine. Produces a reasonable 170 kilowatts and 400 newton metres. It runs through a six-speed automatic transmission with the iActiv all-wheel drive. The Mazda CX-9 has always been slightly underrated luxury all-wheel drive SUV, and the latest model is excellent, priced from around $73,500 plus the usual costs. It's a little pricey, but definitely should be on the shopping list. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. One of the biggest issues in purchasing a car at the moment is not choosing the right one, but getting one delivered in a reasonable time. Let's get some perceptions from our mate, Paul Morell. Yes, that's becoming a serious issue at the moment. Um, my readers at Senior Driver Oz are constantly on email to me complaining that, yes, after reading my reviews of some cars, they say, that sounds good, go out to buy one, and find that they won't get one until August or September. Uh, that's an issue that's been created really by the COVID-19 mm. pandemic. What happened was that the car companies, in anticipation of a slowdown in demand, cancelled a lot of their orders for external suppliers of things like you know computer chips and essential things that they didn't think they were going to need too many of. Um, the, the take-up or the recovery has been a lot quicker than they expected, and their supplying suppliers haven't been able to ramp up their production to meet the new demand and we now have the situation where i was talking to volkswagen last week they have they're holding lots and lots of orders they just can't get stock to meet those deliveries and i was talking to hyundai and they even suggested that there's a possibility that the factory in korea may be having to shut down simply because they can't get these cars off the end of the production line this is becoming quite a serious issue i looked at the sales of volkswagens and the Golf so far for the first two months of the year have sold nothing, mm. you know, practically. It is not just a minor dip. It seems to be a major impact. And, and some cars, though, are becoming very trendy. I think of the Suzuki Jimny. You and I went on the launch of it down in Melbourne at a four-wheel drive training facility. It was a wonderful little boxy car of great character. And I think this is more than just supply in the sense of COVID, but it's a fact that it's now become such a trendy little car. Yeah, it's, it's always been the way. You know, if a car suddenly captures the public imagination, which the Jimny has certainly done, then it will catch the manufacturer out. And they're limited anyway. They, the problem with the motor industry, as you would so well understand, is that they have to plan so far in advance I remember Holden, uh, Mike Devereaux at Holden's, complaining that trying to explain to politicians how the motor industry worked was an incredibly difficult thing because politicians think in three-year terms, <laughs> as in from election to election. And he said, you know, car companies have to think in five to ten-year cycles because it takes that long from we're going to have a new model to here's one in the showroom. And he said, and car, the manufacturers, sorry, the politicians just weren't able to comprehend that. It was long lead times, and these things had to be worked out. You had to anticipate exchange rate changes, and you had to anticipate what people wanted in five years' time, not next week. I remember Holden brought out some time ago, not the latest Commodore, but it was a pretty new Commodore, and there was a screaming abuse that it didn't have a diesel engine because of fuel economy. Mm. And I remember saying, well, you know, you've really got to start thinking about this 10 years before. And now, of course... Less than 10 years later, diesel would be the last thing they want to have in European or other areas. I know 
the Commodore was mainly for us. But the point being is that that move against Diesel was one that made that outrageous self-ranting that happened back then irrelevant. Yes, totally. And misleading in many ways if you could predict the future. Yeah, I mean, we'd all like to have a crystal ball, but in the car industry, the, the costs involved are so enormous and the, the potential damage of getting something wrong or predicting something in, incorrectly is just frightening. I mean, we've seen poor old Holden. I mean, look at the look at the models they thought were going to sell here and never really got, got off. I mean, the the Epica and the uh, the um, the Ma, whatever it was called. <laughs> See, I've even forgotten the name of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Memorable. Well, look look what they did after the fuel crisis in 1973. They quickly went through and brought out a smaller Commodore. It, it was the biggest mistake of their lives. I mean, going all the way back to the the, the VB Commodore, the the first of the downsized Commodores. That that yeah, people were very slow to accept that. Eventually, they all decided this made very good sense. But in the initial stages, Holden must have been, or General Motors as Holden as they were then, must have been terrified that they'd misread the market and people were going to buy big Falcons and not buy smaller smaller Commodores. Well, the Commodore got big again. Well, of course it did. (laughs) Probably just in time for everyone to start buying smaller cars. Smaller cars and SUVs, that's something we'll talk about uh, uh, coming up as well. Thanks, Paul. This is Overdrive across Australia. Catching an aeroplane is a lot more than just how long the in-flight time is. And I think that really comes into one measure that France is applying or looking to apply in a small number of situations to reduce global warming pollution. Brian Smith, our transport planner extraordinaire, is on the line to talk about that. Good day, Brian. Good day, David. Now, tell me, what is, what's France or the French government doing? A new one that they're talking about here is the potential to ban air travel for trips that could be done by train in less than two and a half hours. Now, France has a high-speed rail network and and quite an extensive rail network, so the the ban would only apply to routes which have uh, a a rail alternative. But it's a a fascinating idea that some short-haul flights um, may be removed in favour of train travel to have a better greenhouse gas emission outcome. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, looking at what impact this might have, it may be much less than people might expect. Um, you know, connecting flights won't be affected, so international travellers wouldn't necessarily find themselves having to, to sort of jump off onto a train. But still, um, you know, you can actually often find that the train will take you really where you want to go, you know, rather than the airport being at the outskirts of a city, maybe another 20 or 40 minute ride in a taxi or or train to the city centre. The train station is usually in the heart of the city. I was talking to a business person who regularly flew Sydney to Melbourne. Now, the flight time of that is one and a half hours scheduled time. They usually allow six hours to make the trip. By the time they get to the airport, queue up, wait for it, get on the aeroplane, taxi out, get there, fly there, get from the airport back to Melbourne with the occasional delay and 
they allow six hours. Now, I know a lot of other people say, oh, well, I've done it in the commute and what have you. But I tell you what, you ever flown Sydney to Canberra? Oh, yeah, it's like 20 minutes right on the inside the plane. And it takes about three hours, which I've got mates that live in the south side of Sydney. They drive at the drop of a hat. And even from, from the north side, it's just not worth the effort. And I think to some ways we've in the romanticised, or perhaps we're after frequent flyers, that we use a plane trip when another trip would uh, would suffice, if not be better. I've even considered Sydney to Melbourne on the train. It's just a bit too long, 12 hours. But, gee, you get a lot of work done. Gee, you can do it in a more... Ro- it works well in one direction. So Sydney to Melbourne, you can ride it overnight. Uh, you know, and you're arriving in the morning at the start of the working day. It's it's trickier going back. The schedule isn't as good. But, yeah, I have colleagues who took the train and were able to get lots of work done, travelled overnight and arriving the next morning. And, and, and a lot less, uh, a lot more con- convenient than having to sort of get to an airport and, you know, rush everywhere. I, I actually get the bus to and from airports wherever I possibly can. Certainly Melbourne is better than Sydney. What sort of trips are there? I mean, you, you wouldn't do uh, Melbourne to Geelong. I mean, that's about 70 kilometres, and you've got to drive halfway there to get to uh, the airport anyway, haven't you? Ballarat? No, it'd be things like Newcastle. Newcastle, yeah. Not many people would fly there, but, but uh, Australia's a bit different to Europe because our cities are so much further apart. Mm. But you know, if we have good frequency and good speed on trains, they can certainly be a, a good alternative for some of these very high-volume, shorter trips. Um, and the greenhouse gas impact of air travel is extremely high. Mm. Of course, our rail is either diesel in the regional areas or uh, diesel electric, or where we do have electric, we rely a lot on coal for the production of electric electricity. So we've got a little way to go compared with France, but... Um, but I think uh, they can certainly show the way, uh, you know, how government can intervene and encourage more sustainable behaviour. Mm. And, in fact, people may find that the train is a pretty cool way of travelling. I find it much more relaxing. I, I really enjoy it. It's a bit of romance, which I think we've totally lost out of airports. What's the shortest flight in the world? Uh, look, I, I may have taken one, David, from uh, one island off uh, off the coast of Ireland and to uh, might have been Shannon Airport. It took a, a couple of minutes, basically. It was <laughs> extremely frightening because the, the aircraft was very worn and the seat was broken. So I sort of uh, it was like sitting inside a garbage bin, you know, where you've been pushed into a garbage bin by a bully. Never happened to me, David, but you probably sympathised. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the plane sort of arrived. People got out, I got in, it took off and then landed. So it was like, um, uh, you know, it was like a taxi trip, a very, very short taxi trip, a couple of minutes long. Logan Air also operates a Westray to Papa Westray airports in Scotland near the Orkney, uh, Orkney Islands. And there the duration is two minutes, although the record is that one of them has done it in 47 seconds. Oh, my goodness. And and the reason for that is, of course, is to get over water. But um, I, I, you know, I still think that 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 would have to be the worst of all aeroplane flights, which is all queuing, all that for minuscule amount of flight in the air. I mean, there'd just be no in-flight service at all. <laughs> the trolley wouldn't even get out the 
out of the galley. <laughs> That's right. You might get a biscuit. <laughs> no time to eat it. Oh, oh, all the rest of you. Yeah. That's right. Seatbelt on, seatbelt off. <laughs> all right, Brian. Great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you, David. Bye. And that's Brian Smith, who is a transport planner, but also one who looks at broader aspects of the world and uh, sometimes with a rather cynical, if not humorous eye. This is Overdrive across Australia. Ford has reintroduced the Ranger FX4. It sits between the XLT and the FX4 Max models. It adds a level of style enhancement externally and some extra features inside and is only available as a dual cab four-wheel drive. Externally there is a black front grille, bi-LED headlights, 18-inch alloys with excellent BF Goodridge all-terrain tyres, black highlights and striking decals everywhere. The tub has a protective liner and a black sports bar. Visually it screams, look at me. Inside there are leather-sided front sports seats with FX4 embossed backs, leather rear seats, soft-touch instrument panel and contrast stitching. The FX4 comes with a choice of two engines and transmissions, the original 3.2-litre 5-cylinder with a 6-speed transmission, and the newer 2-litre bi-turbo with a 10-speed transmission. It'll tow 3,500 kilos and comes with just short of a tonne payload, with a 5-star ANCAP safety rating from 2015. The Ranger FX4 is priced from $59,990 through to $63,690, plus the usual costs. I'm Rob Fraser. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Paul Morell, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just and the Overdrive team for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Programs and more information is available at our website, drivenmedia.com.au or as a podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.